For the first time since he got here, Thad Mata appears to be facing real criticism from Buckeye fans. I'm Steve Brown. And I'm Thomas Bradley. This is After the Score. Welcome to After the Score, 89.7's weekly look at sports. I'm Steve Brown here with Thomas Bradley. This week, we'll take a detour away from traditional sports and report on the professional video game circuit. There's a big tournament in town this weekend. We'll also look into why Ohio State is pulling 2,000 seats out of the horseshoe to make way for luxury suites. Steve has concerns, but I think it's actually pretty harmless. You can hear me win that debate coming up in a few minutes. But first, there is no debating the Ohio State men's basketball team will look a lot different next year. Less than a year after many experts said Ohio State had one of the top recruiting classes in the nation, 80% of those recruits are gone. Yes, they are. Daniel Giddens, A.J. Harris, and Mickey Mitchell all announced this week that they intend to transfer, and they join Austin Grandstaff, another freshman who left the program last December. The lone freshman on the team, Jaquan Lyle, is the only one left from that class, and on the phone now is Rob Aller from the Columbus Dispatch. Rob, I know Daniel Giddens cited family reasons for wanting to transfer. Have we heard why the other guys wanted out? I think it's uh, playing time and, uh, you know, opportunity would be my guess. Uh, you know, I'm writing on this for tomorrow in the dispatch. I think there's a bit of a cultural millennial aspect to this, that uh, patience is pretty thin these days. Kids come in, they want to play, they look ahead, they say, they see that uh, maybe they're not going to be playing until their junior or senior year, if then, and so they're out of there. I mean, the transfer rate is, is just keeps ballooning in college basketball, and uh, I believe just in the last few days, Michigan State uh, has two kids who are transferring out, so it's not just Ohio State. Is there is there a reason that we're seeing this change with the impatience of the freshmen? Do they not know that... When they come to Ohio State, there's developed sophomores and juniors ahead of them, and it might be two or three years before they get a starting role on this basketball team. Is there some delusion in the recruiting process that leads them to believe they're going to come in and be the next D'Angelo Russell? Well, I think there's just delusion everywhere. I think parenting has changed. You know, there's people in these kids' ears more than ever. Again, it's a societal thing. Um, I do believe with AAU programs, you know, they're the star there. They play a lot. Uh, there's an expectation that they're going to be the man as soon as they walk on campus, and they're not. And, uh, you know, they just don't stick it out. That said, I think there's culpability here on Ohio State side, any program side, that you better know who you're recruiting. You better vet this kid pretty good. And I know it's a possibility uh, to be perfect and know exactly what this kid is made of, what his chemistry is uh, when he comes in. But, you got to know family background. You got to know who's pressuring the kid when you recruit them, and that's difficult when you're recruiting them so early. Uh, so there's a lot of factors here. Uh, it is unusual that uh, I believe what four or five are leaving Ohio State. So uh, that's a curiosity. But um, again, culpability on Ohio State side in recruiting, and culpability on the kids' side of just not being patient, thinking they're maybe better than they are. Yeah, 80% of a recruiting class that was called the fifth best in the nation just last summer. Head coach Thad Mata has been to the national championship game, two Final Fours, a lot more Sweet 16s. Uh, some fans will be mad anytime OSU isn't a top team in the nation, but this seems to be 
the first case where Mata is really taking a lot of heat, where he's really come under the public eye that uh, a lot of fans think he's losing the team? Well, this isn't going to help that, that's for sure. I mean, it's like the, the question is going to come down to those who want to see it as a program uh, issue and not a person or people issue are, are definitely going to see this as ammunition that, uh, you know, the ship has sailed on Bad Mata and that he's uh, not what he was. I think, you know, the facts speak for themselves from a certain standpoint that uh, there is some truth to that. Uh, they've been down the last few years, but, you know, there's a lot of factoring in that. Uh, how much of it is Bad Mata? How much of it is Bad Mata's coaching staff? How much of it is just, again, societal change? How much of it is just circumstance that D'Angelo Russell leaves, a one and done? Uh, I mean, I, I maintain that uh, even though Ohio State can be a top 10 program, uh, when they're clicking on all cylinders, um, this may ruffle feathers. But uh, I don't think that the Buckeyes will ever be a Kentucky, a North Carolina, a Duke. Uh, just as a kid coming out of high school who's a great football player would take Ohio State over a Kentucky, uh, the same goes is holds true for a kid coming out who's a great basketball player, a five-star blue chipper. He's going to take Kentucky over Ohio State generally. So um, that's not to say they can't compete for Elite Eight, you know, Sweet 16, or occasional Final Four. But um, the, the problem here is that there's been an expectation built because of those Final Four appearances by Mata. And so a little bit of slippage is really seen as a huge slippage. When in actuality, I'm not so sure it is. And again, you know, Fads had some health issues too, and that probably has affected things in terms of coaching and teaching and jumping into drills, whereas he used to be able to do that and hands-on. I think that's probably no longer the case because of his back and, and foot issues. It also hurts on the recruiting trail. So there's a lot of moving pieces here. I'm kind of in the same camp that I've seen a lot of reactions online on Twitter on Facebook. I've seen a lot of reactions that kind of blow it out of proportion. I'm, I'm kind of in the camp that this isn't as big of a deal as some are making it seem. It, it looks bad on the surface, but you're losing a guy like Mickey Mitchell. I think he averaged two points on a team that, that failed in the NIT tournament. We're, you're losing a guy like uh, Harris, Austin Grandstaff, transferred earlier in the year, but you're keeping the anchor pieces of the recruiting class. Jaquan Lyle is not going to go anywhere. Trevor Thompson said he's going to look into declaring for the draft. I personally think he'll be back. I don't think he's going to find what he wants to find in the, the draft process. I think he'll be back for his junior season. I don't think this is the worst thing in the world for Ohio State basketball. I, I think they'll still be able to grow upon the season and, and honestly play better next year. I agree with that. I, you have your core. You have, you know, the guys who've left, I think, are only 11% of the scoring, something like that. So the core scores, the top six scores are back. Here's, here's where it affects things is that next year you have now lost the, whether you want to call it an excuse or explanation, of this being a young team. I mean, technically it will even be younger because you've got more freshmen coming in. You've lost some soft, you know, potential sophomores. But you can't hide behind, fairly or not, you can't hide behind that, well, you know, these guys need to develop, these guys are young, because just because four guys walked away, that doesn't give you that excuse, at least in my view. You have to hold the bar still pretty high. So these six in the core teams, they they better perform because I don't think there's a whole lot of uh, margin for error in terms of public perception at this point. 
The NCAA says 40% of all men's basketball players who enter Division I directly out of high school depart their initial school by the end of their sophomore year. Ohio State is joining that trend as four of the five members of the 2015 recruiting class say they are transferring away from Ohio State. Rob Aller from the Columbus Dispatch. Thanks as always. Thanks, guys. The OSU men's basketball team will look a lot different next year. So will Ohio Stadium. Well, it's still going to be in the shape of a horseshoe. And it's not going to look different next year because the renovations aren't going to be done until 2020. They're doing some boring stuff like concrete and electrical work this year. But they're making other big changes that really caught Steve's attention. Yeah, they are because I'm a champion of the common man. You know this, Thomas. They're pulling out about 2,000 regular seats from the stadium, which are still pretty high priced. They're still pricey for, you know, Joe the plumber who wants to, to come see a football game. They're oh, pulling Joe. they're pulling those seats out to make room for luxury boxes and what are known as loge seats. Those are those seats that are kind of a mix between regular seats and box seats. Uh, they have tables and wait staff and stuff. They're higher end seats. They're not the, the average guy's seats. And I don't like it. I really don't like it. Because there's not enough average guy's seats in the 105,000 person capacity stadium already. Well, no, we live in a metro area of two, 2 million people now. I don't think there are enough. I mean, there are a lot, but there's obviously not enough to meet demand. I, I For some games, you're right. For a night game against Michigan State, uh, where the weather's perfect, I bet... I bet the shoe gets fully filled. I bet there's 106,000 people there, and people are struggling to find a place to sit. The problem is not every game is a night game against Michigan State. You're going to have games against Akron. You're going to have games against University of Central Florida. You're going to have games against Hawaii. And those are the games where they they need to fly in the rich people because they're must-see TV. (laughs) Those are the games that you're going to get more value out of the experience and the luxury that they're adding rather than just someone wants to be in the horseshoe. I don't want to be in the C-Deck nosebleeds for a news ga- noon game against Hawaii, but maybe I'll shell out a couple extra bucks to, to be in a luxury suite with a bar and watch the game with uh, some people wearing ties and a suits and act like I'm a big deal, you know? I, I don't think our public radio salaries are buying those box seats. <laughs> uh, maybe we could get one comped, I don't know, if we, if we talk to enough people. But I don't know. Here, here's Gene Smith uh, this week speaking with one of our reporters uh, about the basic idea behind these changes. We anticipated that we would get to some type of uh, design that would allow us to add suites. And, and frankly, in, in 13 and 14, we didn't envision the low seats, uh, but that emerged over time. But it's still fit into our numbers. Loge seats. There we go again with that term. Every time I, I hear loge seats, I think of someone on a luge going down a hill. Um I don't know. I like Gene. I don't have a problem with Gene Smith. He can, but he can spend it all he wants. I, I still don't care for it. I still think this is another instance of quote unquote amateur sports squeezing out normal people. If there was a higher demand for those cheaper seats, they would make an e deck. They would keep building up and make higher up seats. Put bleachers in. They already closed the end of the shoe a long time ago yeah, to add a lo- bunch of seats. I don't know if there's more room to build. They can build higher. They'll they'll figure out a way to do it. <laughs> they'll be a skyscraper. If, if there was a real demand, <laughs> they would keep building up, and we'll have a skyscraper shoe. The problem is, I don't think there's that com- demand. I think more people are enjoying the experience of watching games on TV. It is incredible 
over yeah, the past I'll, I'll 20, give you 20 years how much better a game is on TV than in person. Beer's cheaper, too. But they don't have, <laughs> they don't have beer, though, as you guys. They, they don't, but in these luxury suites, they, they might have beer. Oh, they, they do. They you're right. You know what? You're right. I forgot about that. And you did. Um, you you mentioned something this week that I'd forgotten about. Two years ago, they added 2,500 seats to the stadium. Yeah, they they brought it up to try to be the second or third biggest stadium. I think the Ohio Stadium's only behind like three stadiums. Was right that really now. their goal? They said that was their goal. I think I think that was their intended goal is to have more seats than Michigan, and then Michigan expanded. They uh-huh. they're starting to build their skyscraper, the Big House. They just keep going up. So I think if the demand was really there, I think if uh, Joe the plumber wanted to spend $55, $75 on a nosebleed ticket. If they saw a real big market for that, they'd do it. But right now, if you look up in the corners of the closed end of the shoe, in the cor- in the corners of the C and D deck, um, the the fans simply aren't there. They're not they're not filling it up like they would pack it in. One game a year is when they pack it in. One game. It's whatever the marquee night game is. They they get near an attendance record. So I think they're seeing a lot of value in these luxury suites and selling the experience rather than the person in the seat. But most of these games do sell out, right? And if you do see an empty seat, it's because of a lag in the secondary market in places like StubHub. Exactly. But that's because Ohio State is the, the best ticket in town or any town around here. So every game is going to sell out with, with few exceptions. You'll see a non-conference game go up on, on OhioStateBuckeyes.com and they'll have single game tickets available. But that's, that's very rare. take a step back from traditional sports and take a few minutes to talk about video games. Yeah, you might be wondering why we're talking about video games in a sports show, but we're not just talking about any video games. It's Major League Gaming, the professional video game circuit. And it's not just kids playing video games in their basement for 12 hours straight. This is serious stuff with a lot of money at stake. Yeah, exactly $1 million at stake in a big tournament this weekend in Nationwide Arena in downtown Columbus. I stopped at the arena this morning to talk to Bruce Dugan. He works for the video game company Activision, which is helping host this weekend's tournament. He gave me the basic background on what exactly Major League Gaming is. Major League Gaming is an independent uh, operator of esports events as well as a sanctioning body for esports. Um, so we help organize events and tournaments and we make sure they run well. When you say esports, I think of video games. Is that too simplistic? or? Nope, that's about it. It's competitive video game playing. And how do you compete in video games? Is it just two people going to head to head basically? Or are there all different kinds of ways to play? For this weekend, we're focusing on Counter-Strike. It's the major championship, uh, only one of four they do every year and the first time in North America. You have teams of uh, five players on either side competing to defuse or arm a bomb. And how realistic is this game? Is it, is it super high tech? Is it something that a, a normal person might not play? Um, this game's, yeah. Any cost to the consumer from businesses that essentially are consistently profiting. At the end of the day, for us, you know, what about the member? What about, you know, Susie Buckeye, who's on a fixed income? And when I think of video games, I think of some guys playing in their dorm or something like that. But this is much more competitive than that, right? This is serious business. Yeah, these guys are come from all over the world. Um, these are the 16 best teams in the world competing for a million dollars. Um, a lot of them have moved around, so they all live in team houses. So not very different than a dorm, except a lot nicer. Um, 
and, and they travel the world playing Counter-Strike, and they've all qualified to be here this weekend. A million dollars to split between the team? The uh, first prize is 500000 and then the rest gets divvied up between the second, third, and fourth place teams. And these people do this for a living, right? This is what they do, yeah, full-time. If they're not uh, playing in tournaments, they're usually streaming online somewhere like MLG or YouTube or Twitch, um, and they're generating money from ad revenues and people watching. And this is obviously their passion, but it's... It's not necessarily fun for them, right? It's, it's probably a job. It's very stressful. Um, you'll see in the back, uh, backstage, a lot of players warming up. They play 10 to 12 hours a day. Um, it's kind of a short shelf life. You can't play competitive video gaming, much like you know any high-pressure sport. You're not going to do it consistently for 10 straight years. How big is this industry in, in the U.S. and worldwide? Uh, we're projected to have about 100 million viewers worldwide in 2015. Um, they expect that to triple by 2018. Um, so it's really large. There's a lot of teams. There's a lot of games. You know, we get upwards of 10,000 people live at an event like this, and you know, we'll have 10 to 15 million watching at home. How many of the stereotypes hold true about gamers? They're reclusive. They don't get out a lot. They're uh, kind of nerdy, if you will. Are these mostly true or totally untrue? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, like any industry, you have different types of people. I think, you know, the, the nature of the game is that you're playing a lot of it solo and you're doing it by yourself with headphones on, so it naturally closes you off. But if you walk around here and you meet a lot of the players, they're very outgoing, very gregarious. Um, you know, they have a lot of fans here. They sign autographs, they talk to people. So I wouldn't say that they're at home in basements. They're probably, you know, playing in a little nicer area than that now. And this is a nationwide arena, so there must, must be a lot of fans here. There's a lot of public interest. Yeah, we sold uh, over 9,000 tickets this weekend. We had people lined up at 7 a.m. waiting to get in when the doors opened at 9 a.m. Um, so yeah, it's pretty dedicated. It's a, you know, you don't go to many sporting events that take place over three days, 12 hours a day and have the arena completely sold out with people not wanting to leave. So it's pretty exciting. For someone who might be skeptical of the professional video gaming industry, make a sell. Why should they come here to watch? Um, I, I don't have to sell. We have a lot of people here. Uh, I, I think it's really interesting. If you like high-level competition and you like video games, it, it's pretty cool to watch. If you don't, I mean, the industry is already so large uh, that, that you're really the one missing out, I think. What's your favorite video game? My favorite game right now is probably The Division, which is a Ubisoft game. It's not a competitive title. I would say competitively my favorite game is Call of Duty. All right, well, thanks for your time. Thank you. It's a, a big week for U.S. soccer. Yeah, it really is. The U.S. men's national team was in Columbus this week fighting for survival in the World Cup qualifying process. And the under-23 men's team was in a two-game playoff with Colombia for the final spot in the Rio Olympics. On the phone now is Pat Murphy from the soccer website Massive Report. Pat, can you talk about what happened with the under-23 team in Texas? Yeah, really, you know, this, this whole thing started a while back when the, the under-23s didn't um, earn a spot in the final game to to guarantee them qualification. They lost to Honduras in the semifinals and then won the third-place game to uh, to get to this two-leg series that you mentioned against Colombia. Um, Honduras is not a team that the, the U.S. under-23s should be losing to. Um, they're a good team, but you know this this team and, and the focus that Jurgen Klinsmann has put on the Olympics and everything, they should have taken care of business a while ago. And Colombia is a really good, you know, country you know when it comes to soccer they're not their senior national team is good because their youth national teams are good and they you know build from the ground up which is 
you know, how, you know, how this all should work. Um, you know, there are players on that team that are playing in Europe and are, you know, pretty sizable names. So it was always going to be a tough task. Getting the 1-1 result in Colombia was, was pretty big, but the performance wasn't great. And, you know, it didn't, didn't spell, uh, probably a good result once they got back here. And what we saw in that game was kind of the U.S. trying to hold on and it did not work, obviously. So the U.S. tied that first leg in Columbia 1-1, to needed to come back to Texas and win that game to move on and qualify for the Olympics. They lost that game 2-1, to losing the aggregate 3-2. to So Columbia grabs that last spot and the U.S. is not in the Olympics. Yeah, um, it, which is unfortunate because, you know, not only is it more exposure for U.S. soccer, but, uh, you know, it's a chance for these young kids to get another international tournament experience. You know, you hope that, you know, some of these guys are eventually playing for the senior U.S. team, and some of them have, but you want them to be in, you know, the mix for that next World Cup team in, in 2018 and, um, you know, really kind of build, building up, as I mentioned before, like Columbia does. Uh, so it is disappointing. Now the Olympics isn't a huge soccer competition, you know, on a, on a global stage. You know, it's not something a lot of countries pay attention to, but it certainly would have been nice to be there. And now it's too straight that the U.S. haven't qualified for. Yeah, the World Cup is the the real prize when it comes to international soccer. I guess it is somewhat of a good thing that there's disappointment that the, the men's team did not qualify for the Olympics. That means there is higher expectations, right? The U.S. is is not maybe not a world soccer power, but they're they're relevant now consistently year after year. Correct. Um, you know, Jurgen Klinsmann, the, the men's head coach who kind of oversees everything, put that emphasis on the Olympics. You know, obviously he's focused on the World Cup qualifying with the senior team, but, um, you know, he wanted to see these guys go through um, and, and, you know, represent the country on, you know, another international stage. And it is disappointing. Um, you know, it, it it is what it is. You, you just kind of have to live with it at this point. But, um, you know, the, they kind of, like I said, they kind of put themselves in a bad position by not taking care of business within their, you know, qualifying region here in North and Central America. The U.S. men's national team, the one trying to qualify for the World Cup a week ago, found themselves in a lot of trouble against, uh, quite frankly, a lesser team. Guatemala was able to beat them 2-0 to zero on their own court in, in Guatemala and put the U.S. in a really tough spot leading up to a rematch with Guatemala in Columbus. What happened with that game, Pat? Yeah, it was it was it was bad to put it lightly. Um, you know, they it's always tough to go on the road in in Concacaf in this qualifying region. But as you mentioned, Colombia or sorry, uh, Honduras is is a lesser team in the U.S. You know, they should have been able to go in there and and kind of boss the game. And in fact, they were the ones who were kind of pushed around. Um, you know, it was a fairly hostile crowd, and the travel and things like that are all kind of excuses. But you know, frankly, on that day. Guatemala played the better game. Um, you know, the U.S. was was sort of out of sorts. Jurgen Klinsmann was blamed for playing players out of position, um, and you know, it, it showed that the guys just weren't comfortable, and it resulted in that two-zero defeat. So that they lost two-zero, jumped forward a couple of days in Columbus. They 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 turned it around. That they played much better. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the game in Columbus was what you expected out of the U.S. national team. You know, the lineup, as I mentioned before, was, was kind of adjusted to fix some of the problems. Um, you know, and it, it showed what this team can do when it's firing on all cylinders. I mean, the crowd in Columbus was great. You know, Columbus in general has been has been great to the national team. They're undefeated here. Um, you know, and so they come to a, a familiar place for a lot of these guys and get a good result. You know, 4-0 was uh, a dominating result. And, you know, you saw... 
assembled guys score. You got to see Ethan Finley make his uh, make an appearance in front of you know the hometown team. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a pretty special night, and it kind of you know turned things around so that going forward with the rest of this qualification, they're sitting in a good spot. Five players on the U.S. women's national team filed a federal complaint this week accusing the U.S. soccer sanctioning body of wage discrimination because they say they earned as little as 40 percent of what the players on the men's team earn. I'm not asking you necessarily to weigh in on this uh, on this dispute, but women's soccer is a it's a, a very viable product. It's not a sport where the, the, the product of the field is, is less than the men. It's it's a it's a really a great sport. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, you know, I don't know how many people listening are familiar with the U.S. women's team, but, you know, the the World Cup last summer generated a, a lot of interest in the U.S. Um, you know, obviously they, they won the World Cup, which is something the men's team has never done. They've done it multiple times. Um, and, you know, they're considered a world power. And so, you know, I think that, you know, when, they, when these women look at it, they feel like they should be treated as such. Um, you know, it's it's an entertaining game, women's soccer. You know, it's it's a little different than the men's, just like you have in any sport. But you know, it's certainly not a lesser product. They uh, they play an exciting game, and you know, they win a lot, which you know generates interest in in the sport in general. The Columbus Crew are struggling to say the least. You meant, mentioned Ethan Finley. He did make his appearance for the U.S. men's national team and should have had a goal if not for a lousy offsides call. Um, quite frankly, but Ethan Finley and the crew struggling in the MLS. I think people thought they'd just run run amok and, and do really well in the MLS after their run last year. Were expectations set a little bit too high for the Columbus Crew SC? Yeah, I think they might have been across the fan base. Um, you know, obviously you make a run to a championship game, you know, the, the expectations are going to be high. You know, they finished second in the Eastern Conference last year, were a good team, you know, for most of the season, but they had their ups and downs. Um, you know, now they're having one of those downs. You know, they started the season uh, with two losses. They got a tie in Chicago a couple weeks ago to, you know, to get their first point of the season. But you know, the the problem and the concern from the fan base is that it just hasn't looked right. You know, they're you know last year they were scoring goals, creating chances, and so far this year it just hasn't hasn't kind of clicked yet. Um, and I think with with so many returning players, they returned all eleven guys that started in the MLS Cup final. Um, you know. That's where the expectations came from, and rightfully so. But you know, this you know, what fans have to remember is there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs, like I said, and and you're going to have to roll with that. This is still a good team with good players, a good coach. Um, they've had a week off to kind of fix things before this weekend's game with Dallas, and um, you know, it, they're going through a bit of a rough stretch. But you know, Greg Berhalter has proven over his first two years that he can get this team going, and it's a very long season. It is a long season. What do you think is a, a fair expectation of this team? Do you do you see them in the playoffs? Do you see them uh, advancing in the playoffs, or do you think they even fall short of the postseason? No, I think I think playoffs are certainly part of the expectation. You know, you've made it those first two years under Coach Berhalter. Um, you know, they finished third in the East two years ago, second in the East last year. Obviously, made the run in MLS Cup. This is a team that should continue to be pushing for you know runs in the playoffs. That's the expectation, and I think that's fair. You know, I think I uh, I think I wrote before the season that I picked them to finish second or third, which is right about where they were, um, you know, these last two years. So, you know, they're while they're not in a good spot right now, they have plenty of time to make it up. They have the like I said, they have the players to do it, and you know, I think they'll be very much in the mix of things come the end of the season. A lot of soccer news. The U.S. men's national team all but clinching a spot in the World Cup. They they did well in beating Guatemala in Columbus, Ohio. 
the under-23 team is not going to be in the Olympics. The U.S. not going to be in Rio for soccer. And the Columbus crew looking to turn things around. We've been talking with Pat Murphy. Uh, He reports for Massive Report, covers the crew, covers soccer. Pat, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that will do it for this week's edition of After the Score. You can find a full archive of episodes using the WOSU Public Media mobile app and on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at After the Score. We're taking a short break in April, and we'll actually be back on the 22nd. Until then, I'm Thomas Bradley. And I'm Steve Brown.